All right, turn with me, if you would, please, to Acts chapter 2, and uh, we're going to look at a, a lengthy passage today there, and it's one whole sermon, so we're just going to take a look at the, what was preached on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse number 14. So I encourage you to turn there in the scripture, find it on your device, however you want to follow along, but uh, I encourage you to follow the passage that we'll look at together today there, Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and welcome to uh, worship, and it's great to be together in God's, uh, with God's people today. Second Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse number 14, the Bible says, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in these in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken." Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, or we would say in the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for uh, Peter. Thank you for the courage that you, by your Spirit, put into his heart that he would proclaim truth that we repeat today and remember, God, and we live out ourselves. We pray your Spirit will speak to us now and help us as we think about the message of hope that we receive and, God, that we live and that we tell others about. And we pray that you'll use your word by your Spirit in us, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we uh, look at the scripture today, we see the uh, apostles' message. This was Peter. Jesus said about Peter, if you remember, uh, you are Peter, but he, he says you are going to be a rock. You're the rock. This is Peter becoming the rock on Pentecost. This is Peter walking out Jesus' word to him. And so what we're seeing is the very first message ever preached after Pentecost. It, after the Spirit came and filled his people, inhabited uh, their lives as followers of Christ, this isn't the first sermon preached because John the Baptist preached and Jesus preached and others had preached, but this is the first sermon that we see post-Pentecost when the Spirit has come and he is beginning to fulfill his promise among his people. It's uh, Peter becoming who Jesus predicted that he would be a leader among the apostles. And when we continue in Acts, we're going to see that Peter plays a prominent part in the work of the message and the mission of the church. It's interesting to understand what the Holy Spirit was saying post-Pentecost through uh, the apostles to these travelers. who We looked at this last week. Because we're going verse by verse through Acts, and we saw that people had come from all over the ancient Near East to Jerusalem. And some people said over the four feasts that would occur in Jerusalem, there were millions of people. There were normally about 200,000, 300,000 people in Jerusalem. But for the feast, millions of people would migrate there to worship at the temple and to observe the feast that God had commanded. And here it's Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit has come and is empowering his people. And so we think about what are the teachings of the apostles because the beauty of Christianity is that it doesn't have to be reinvented again and again and again. God has given us a timeless word that's always relevant. And so when we think about the what the apostles uh, taught, these are some of the important reasons that we, we uh, keep coming back to these very basic essentials of their message. For one thing, <clears throat> the apostles' teaching is our standard for doctrinal accuracy. How do we know what to believe? You know, there, there are sects and religious groups uh, that were born in North America who believe that uh, inspiration is open-ended and that the authority for uh, faith and belief is malleable and it can change and be altered, but Christians say there are 66 books that God gave us. The canon of Scripture is closed and everything we know about God, he's given to us 
complete and entire, and its authority is has been spoken to us. We don't have to uh, rethink it or change it because God is eternal and timeless, and he is Lord. He is the authority for everything. God doesn't change his mind. He said, I'm not a man that I have to change my mind. I change my mind all the time. God doesn't. He says, I'm not a man. I'm not a human. I'm not fallible. He's infallible. He's perfect. And when God told us what we needed to know, he has given it to us eternally. That is a rich, rich blessing in our life. To know that there's an anchor that we we can cling to every day, every moment of every day. And, and so the apostles' teaching sets healthy limits on the, theological innovation. That's one important truth that when we think about, okay, what is our faith? What's the basis of it? How is How does it hold together? How do we hold together? It's We don't have to have innovation. It is constant. It, God gave us his word, and theology has boundaries and limits that are defined by God himself. And so as we keep going, it's complemented by biblical epistles. We think about what the apostles taught. Well, they got, the apostles primarily were responsible for giving us epistles in the New Testament. There are 39 Old Testament books, right? 27 New Testament books. Four of those are Gospels. One is Apocalyptic, the book of Revelation. And uh, 13 of the New Testament books we would call Epistles. They, they were written to uh, encourage the church in its faith and practice. So we were talking about this in Sunday school earlier today, which, by the way, I'm going to keep plugging that small group Bible study time is so immensely important because you have the opportunity to interact with others and it, discipleship is ongoing and it's a way that you can grow as a disciple. A way, I would encourage you to participate in small group Bible study. But it, when what we were talking about in there is like what it looks like to grow as a Christian. And so we think about what the apostles gave us, the epistles show us, for example, how to grow in grace. That's one of the big topics. They teach us about Christian ethics. How should I live? What's right and wrong morally? God spells that out in his word for us. They show us uh, how to advance in maturity, how to live in community, because God doesn't call Christians to be isolated. And a, a Christian in isolation is in, in a dangerous position. God brings us into community with others, and we're supposed to build our life together. The Christian community is family. Uh, Jesus said, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, to believe and to become part of a family of believers. And so the epistles that the scripture gave us, which are things like 1 John, 2 John, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, those letters that were written to churches instruct us about a life in godliness, and they show us how to live in families. That's important, right? We need advice all the time about how to flesh out our family dynamics, and so they, that's the importance that shows us orthodoxy and ecclesiology. You say, what? Church. What is, how does church look? What's it supposed to con- consist of? So we know that when we come together, what belongs in a church service? Prayer, communion, preaching, praising. 
and the other stuff we say, it has its own place, but the, the worship service, we get our sense of uh, direction about it from the Bible, and, and that's how we, we live. And so when we think about the apostles' teaching, why it mattered, it derives from Jesus and agrees with Jesus. In other words, you're never going to see the apostles teach something that Jesus didn't teach them first. That's how it came to us, that succession of truth. God came, lived a human life, invested his life in these other men, and then they began to, what we're seeing in Acts, proclaim truth and to uh, continue to help us understand God's purpose for humans. Also, it's uh, the authoritative history of God's activity in Christ. The apostles, those men who Jesus himself identified and who followed him and he invested in for three and a half years, were the, the source. The, it's like uh, when you read history, you read good history, or you read academic history, it's footnoted, right? You, you have citations. You, if you went to college, you got sick of learning about citations because scholarly writing always involves learning. How, the, and when I was in school, it was Kate Turabian. I don't know if it, it was Chicago Manual of Style. You had to learn that. And why did they do that? Because they want to show that there is an authority other than you for what you're talking about. When the apostles are speaking, it's footnotes from authoritative sources, the people that lived their faith out right there with Jesus and heard him personally. And that's why it matters that when we talk about the apostles' teaching, the apostle is their firsthand account of everything that they experienced with Christ. And so in Acts, we see this message consistently revolved around one big thing. When we keep reading through Acts, there's one big theme, and it is resurrection. He's, this is what the message is about today. Basically, Peter stands up in front of this group of people, and he says, we worship a resurrected Messiah. God's answer has come, and we're here to tell you there is no other hope or message or person who our salvation is in except for Jesus, and he is alive. So he stands up at this great festival day, and we've all, we saw before that the people were, they heard the sound of the Spirit come, and they heard these people speaking in different languages, dialects, and they're confused as to what is going on and perplexed. And Peter says, he stands up to give clarity. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, he says, it's only nine in the morning. He says, but th this is what was promised to us by God. And then this chapter is going to be Peter preaching an expositional sermon. That's what he does. He takes the Bible and explains the Bible. That's what he's doing in this, um, in this message. And so when we look at the parts of this scripture today, we'll see why it's vital to understand and align our faith with this ancient message. This message that we're looking at is 2,000 years old, and it's older than that because he takes the prophets, uh, David, and he takes the prophet Joel, who existed even, uh, David was thou, uh, over a thousand years or about a thousand years, and Joel was hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. So we're looking at almost 3,000 years of history, and yet it gives us the defining idea of what our faith is still today. 
So in the message, what we can see is, first, that faithful apostolic preaching focuses on the Holy Spirit's work. He's going to say to them, this is what's actually happening here. The Holy Spirit has come, and these men are acting the way they're acting because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the first way we see his activity here is he empowers Peter to preach. Peter impetuous he always wanted to be a leader and and Jesus made him a leader but here we see that his leadership is sound because the spirit of of Christ is empowering uh, Peter and he stands up and he's he preaches and he he uh, unpacks the message that's been given think about who he's preaching to and the boldness in which he gives his message here because some of the people to whom he is preaching would have been conspirators in the execution of Jesus some of these people were part of a conspiracy that caused Jesus to be crucified and Peter is standing up in front of these people who by the way this is less than uh, two months less than two months from Jesus crucifixion Peter stands up and he says you've got blood on your hands some of you that are out here listening to me have blood on your hands because you were guilty in this conspiracy to execute the Messiah, the Christ, who came to you. And then he's going to prove in his sermon that he was the the Christ. And we think about faith in our day, that it, it should be costly. If our faith isn't costly, I doubt it's a biblical faith. If it's not costing us in some sense, I doubt it's a biblical faith because their faith was costly. It cost them to be courageous. It cost them to be uh, thought foolish, possibly. You know, we looked at that idea recently that that God committed His truth to people, and but in the in the ears of the world, what we say that God came and was a human, God came and lived a perfect life in Jesus, that that God gave Himself, that God was raised from the dead, that God ascended visibly and physically through the clouds. To people in the world, that sounds like lunacy. And so Peter stands up and he has courage. And, and uh, Paul would write later on, and he said that to, li- uh, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, our, in North America, we are part of a, this, uh, we're part of a, um, a country that is committed to religious liberty. And so we can worship according to conscience. We can leave home without fear. And But it, we think about in their day, it was costly. The, there was every possibility that they would be arrested, and guess what happened? They were arrested, right? Peter and John later on are dragged before the Sanhedrin, and their lives are endangered, and they're imprisoned. Uh, and this happened again and again and again. But our faith you know, is probably not going to cost us in that way. I've said before, in North America, we experience what people call soft persecution. That is, your feelings may get hurt because you're out of step with the culture, but the likelihood of you experiencing the loss of your rights or violence is very small. So, to me, it's even more difficult in some ways for us to live out our faith in a a society like that because it's easy just to sort of blend in and and, uh, sort of be like a chameleon. But the Bible calls us to have an outstanding, visible, obvious presence for Christ in our society. The Holy Spirit's work was prophesied by Joel. And we'll, this is a good uh, part of the passage that we're reading here. You know, in a lot of translations, like mine has this portion, I ta- 
italicized and referenced. I don't know if your Bible is laid out that way. But this is certainly what we get to is that Peter, when he starts to preach, he says the, the Holy Spirit's coming and what you're experiencing was prophesied by, a, we call him a minor prophet named Joel. Minor has no bearing on his importance. He was important It's uh, that he wrote a smaller book. He didn't write a big book, so they say, well, he's a minor prophet because he did, his uh, message is shorter, and usually that's what minor prophets you see is that they're preaching. And so we think about what he's talking about here. I think what we can see is that it occurs in two, on two levels. On one level, he's describing for them what happened when, the, when Jesus came and the Holy Spirit came. On another level, he's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has to do with the end of the world and judgment and the end of history and Christ's return. So when he's talking about the day of the Lord, there are things that he's going to talk about, vapor of smoke, the moon uh, turning to blood, those kinds of things. I would say that's talking about a crisis that maybe he's speaking in very vivid metaphors, but he's certainly talking about something that didn't happen yet. But a good bit of what he talks about, we can say, has already happened. It happened in the first century when uh, Christ came. And so these last days are the era between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. That's how I understand the last days. You are living in the last days. There is nothing in God's prophetic timetable that interferes with Jesus' return. That's how I read and understand the Bible. We live in this era where Christ could come as a thief in the night, the way he puts it in Scripture. He could return for his people. And so when he's preaching here, he's talking about that period of time, these last days, the days of grace, that's what they really are. When the grace of God has come and the free offer of salvation and forgiveness has been uh, given to us and brought through the Christ, uh, the cross of Christ, through his sacrifice for us. So some people were skeptical as they listened. We've seen that already. But here's the reality. We got here somehow, all of us. We are going someplace, all of us. We got here somehow, we're going someplace, and life has a meaning that the Bible explains and that God assigns. God assigns meaning to life. So we're trying to understand, we talked about this in Sunday school too, what does life mean? What's it for? What's it about? God assigns meaning to life. And God says this, this is his purpose for every person, that we receive eternal life as a free gift that we live in connection to the one who created us for himself and for his glory. So Joel shows us about the last days, but also many of the signs that are mentioned by Joel, as I say, occurred as evidence of Jesus' first advent, the coming of the Holy Spirit, some are yet to come. But Peter shows us in his preaching that the precedent for what is occurring can be found in the Old Testament book of Joel. That's important to his audience. He's preaching to a group of Jewish people who speak different languages. All these people who have come primarily to, some were God-seekers, they would say, but they all came to worship at 
Pentecost. And so he is preaching primarily to a Jewish audience that consisted of people who spoke different dialects. But they all came here, Judaism brought them to Pentecost for worship. And so when he preaches, it's important for him to lay a foundation for them that says, listen, what I'm telling you about is not something that you can't find in your scripture. He says, what I'm telling you about, Joel spoke about hundreds and hundreds of years ago, this coming of the Holy Spirit. So look at the scripture there and see what he says uh, in verse number 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. All you have to do to to understand what he's talking about is read the Gospels and you see, who did uh, God show up and speak to? Mary, right, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, her cousin. They did exactly what the scripture says here. They spoke. They, the, uh, who had visions? Joseph had visions, right? They, God was saying to them, look, I'm doing something incredible. I guess if uh, you were in a relationship and your fiancé says, hey, I'm pregnant, but it's, you know, I've never been with a man An angel coming to you in a dream and giving you some confirmation about that would be helpful to you. And that's what happened. So like when we read Joel, Joel is just telling you what's in the Gospels. You can go read it in the Gospels for yourself. That these people dream dreams. That they had visions that God was giving them. All of it was about the arrival of the anointed one. All of it was just God saying, look, I've broken into history. I've come into history in a way that in, the, in all of mankind this has never occurred before, that God would become a man, that God would be born through the uh, womb of a virgin, that God would live a uh, life to be about 33 years old. So he's given affirmation. Like, already God has told you about this in the book of Joel. That's what Peter's doing in his preaching here. And the signs that he talks about we can see in the Gospels for the most part. And he says, going on, uh, I'll pour out my spirit in those days and you'll prophesy and this is occurring now. He says, I'm explaining to you what's going on now. And the wonders in the heaven and uh, signs in the earth beneath. Some of that you can still find in the Gospels because when Jesus came, you remember we'll celebrate this uh, at at Advent and Christmas season that the angels show up. An angel shows up and then others join and there's an angelic chorus singing what? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So what he's describing here, you know, sometimes we'll read scripture and we're like, Where, well, is that? No, it's a lot of this has happened already. When, when you read the narrative that the uh, apostles gave us in the Gospels, we see that this is happening. And then, as I say, aspects of this, I think we would say, denote something that's going to happen in the future but has not happened yet, that God is going to culminate history, that he is bringing history to a conclusion. And when he does so, he'll come as a righteous judge. And we will be divided, the scripture says, sheeps and goats. Those that have responded to Christ, those who have not. Those who have lived faithfully and worshipped to him, those who have rejected and denied him. That God is coming to judge. He is a judge. He's loving. 
He's done everything that he possibly can to make a way for us to be delivered and saved. But there is a day that's coming. The day of the Lord is heavy with God's judgment. It's heavy with finality and with us being in a position to know where we stand. And so he talks here also in describing what Joel's message was, that God's faithfulness and kindness appear here. Because Joel said in uh, his in chapter 2 in the uh, book of Joel that when you when he uh, in verse 21 it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name shall be uh, name of the Lord shall be saved and so there is this appeal there to God's kindness and faithfulness that uh, we are told that we must come to him there's a day of the Lord think about the word salvation salvation implies that you are in danger, that you need to be rescued, doesn't it? Like when you hear about salvation, saved from what? Saved from peril. We're in danger. The danger that we are in is that our sin has separated us from God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, not even one. There's not one person who can stand on their moral merits before God and plead their case. That's what the Bible means. When it says you need to be saved, it's saying that there is a position that you are in that without outside help, you are hopeless. Good news, there's outside help. The Bible says whoever does what? calls, calls on the name of the Lord, cries out, says, help me, save me. What does that require? Humility, faith, confidence that the one who says they can save you actually can save you. So our situation, we could say, is perilous, but it's not hopeless, thank God. It's perilous, but not hopeless, because the one who can save is mighty to save is the way that the Major prophets put it, mighty to save. So we, we see there also in this passage that faithful apostolic preaching narrates Jesus' life, crucifixion, resurrection, focuses into some very basic and simple truths. When Peter is preaching, this is what his message is about. So when we see the scripture here, we see how Jesus' life is attested among them by signs. Again, when we read the Gospels, this is what we note. The amazing details of Jesus' ministry align with what would be expected if God came to earth and lived among people. You remember the old song, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? (laughs) I don't know about the slob part, but God was one of us. God came here. When God broke through, what, what would you expect to happen? God would have Uh, the ability to walk on water if he chose to, right? Because God created the elements and he's above the elements. He did that. Jesus walked on water. He created this system of natural laws. These are the things that the gospel tells us, that the gospels tell us that Jesus did, that Jesus walked on water, that Jesus raised the dead, that he outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, He cries out to him, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes out after having been in a tomb day upon day upon day. They say, hey, we don't know if this is a good idea because he probably is stinking now. But, But Jesus calls Lazarus out and they unwrap him and let him go. 
because God's broken through. Jesus in front of the crowds, the multitudes, when they just got a few fish and loaves of bread, what does Jesus do? Multiplies the elements. Why? Because he created them, because he's the master of them. He's the master of the sea. When the waves in the Sea of Galilee get out of hand, Jesus speaks to them, right? And, they, and the wind stops blowing. And the sea calms down. Why? Because God had come. God had broken through. God was living among people. God was doing God things. That's what was happening. So when he talks about miracles, signs, wonders, we could go on and on, right, with the Gospels of seeing what Jesus was doing. And so we're talking about these things as creditable historic events thousands of years later on the basis of the apostles' testimony that they saw this and they believed it so strongly that they preached and that the message spread all over and still spreads all over. Jesus' betrayal, we see in this passage, uh, occurred by their hands and with God's foreknowledge is the way that the scripture says it in verse 23. His execution was recent. Peter tells the crowd they were complicit, some of them. And we think about that. They were either consenting to what their wicked rulers did, some of whom uh, we think about the high priest and those that were in authority who were able to pass Jesus over to uh, Pontius Pilate, Pilate who had Roman authority to command that he be executed, but wanted to let him go. But they were insistent, saying, you're no friend of Caesar if you allow this person to go free. And we know that in it was all the sovereign will of God being fleshed out, that his son would become for the rest of the world the payment for sin that he would take upon himself our punishment and our sin debt. And so, the, but these people are present when the message is being preached. And we, we think about what he says, that everyone has a share in the blame for Jesus' sacrifice because everyone's sin necessitated it. Your sin, my sin, every one of us, our sin necessitated his death. And so what Peter said is true was true, is still true. Then Jesus' resurrection, we can see, is the focal point of the preaching of the apostles, and especially this part of Peter's message at Pentecost. Powerful, he shows us that death couldn't hold Jesus. It was not possible, he says, that the grave could hold him. The one who created biological life entombed. The one who made uh, the, the metaphysical reality of a soul, this invisible part of you that makes you a living being. The Bible says it was not possible that death should con- could contain him. I love that. Isn't that powerful? There's no way the grave could contain Jesus. He was going to burst out in life because he is life. That's what he said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. Death has no power, no finality over him. Yes, he died, and yes, he was raised from the dead on a third day because it wasn't possible for the grave to triumph over him. David prophesied in the Psalms about the resurrection of Christ. So that's the next italicized part in my Bible, at least, beginning at verse 25. This is He's citing to them... He's already quoted Joel. Now he's quoting for them Psalm uh, Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. 
And he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. Now, this is David writing. And so this is where, in context, we go, who's David talking about? I, if you read the Psalms very much, I think that all the time. Who's the psalmist talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about somebody else? Because sometimes I think if you're talking about yourself, that is outside of my experience as a human. And I think if the Psalms are anything, they should be relatable to us as humans. These aren't super people except for Jesus. So sometimes when you read the Psalms, you see, aha, he, the writer is not talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. And that's exactly what Peter says is happening here. He says King David's not talking about King David when he writes. He's talking about Jesus, who he knew would come as Messiah. And so the, the psalm writer, when he talks about uh, Jesus, it, it, there's a lot that it contains. He's ascended, he's glorified in the uh, passage that we've read. The grave couldn't hold him. The Psalms, uh, not just talking about Jesus, but uh, his resurrection and his glorified uh, form, not talking about David, but Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. And so uh, these are the elements that we see in this psalm that's given. The psalm isn't about David, it's about Jesus. David understood there was a Godhead. Look at the uh, scripture there, because sometimes people misunderstand God's nature, but David when he wrote this psalm, understood very clearly. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So think about what David is saying. He says, the Lord, who is that? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at... Uh, so he's saying, Yahweh, God, said to God the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your, uh, my footstool. So David understood that in God's personality there was, he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit exactly in this passage, but he certainly says there's Father, there's Son, there are two lords, both of whom are Lord, that he's referring to in this passage. And so he is explaining to us, even in the Psalms, the triune nature of God, the personality of God. Sometimes people will say, you, the word trendy isn't in the Bible. Well, it may not be, but the idea certainly is. And this is one of the places that we see uh, at least an aspect of it, that God in his person, the way God defines himself is that he exists in three persons. And this is one of those places that it is very clear that that's what's being said. So he uh, shows us that. It's a very pregnant little phrase. And then David shows the Messiah's triumph over his enemies. And it, it's a good idea to say, well, who are those people? Who are his enemies? Well, the Messiah's enemies are those who reject his claims, those who do not bow the knee, those who do not open their mouths and worship, because that's what the Scripture says. One day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The enemies of God are those who do not now nor will they before the end of their life bow the knee, open the mouth, worship and praise the one who has created and saved them. So it's not just those who actively oppose him, it's also those who passively ignore him. You know, we think, I'm not an enemy of God. Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. That's what Jesus says. It's not only active like atheist or 
people who blatantly blaspheme. He says, no, it's also those who passively ignore salvation that would be enemies. The scripture shows us also that faithful apostolic preaching calls for a response from those who listen. That's what happens in the very end of this passage is that the people recognize themselves in the message that's being preached and they ask, what should we do? So there are some aspects of that. The one thing we see is that the message convicts them. It pricked them. It, uh, they were cut to the heart, is the way it says it in verse 37, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what should we do? They were convicted. And then they asked an, a very appropriate question. What should we do? And P- Peter explains that. I think here's a problem for people. This was a problem for me until it wasn't. It's like I could come to wor- worship with other people and participate at a certain level, but I knew that there was a response that was required of me beyond my simply participating in a public worship service, and that was to yield and surrender my life to Christ. And so I think often people will hear but not completely respond, not surrender, not yield. And that's, of course, incomplete. These people have the right idea. What, do you, what should we do? They're open. So it convicts us, but it also uh, converts us. That's the power of God, the miracle of regeneration. There, here's what he says to them. Here's what you need to do. Repent. What does that mean? To change our mind. To change our mind, that's exactly the thing that's wrapped up with. But not just a change of mind, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. An about face. It's a redirect. It's like I've been living life with only me to inform and be the authority, but now I recognize there's an authority greater than me, and I yield, I give up, I stop my rebellion. That's what Paul was told. He's like, it's an archaic phrase, but he was asked, why are you kicking against the pricks? And he's, he would understand what was meant. It's like the way that an ox was guided was they had a stick with a sharp pointy thing on it. And you poked him with it and, and, uh, because he was stubborn and he wanted to do his own thing. But that sharp object got him going where he was supposed to go. And God says, that's what people are like. He says we're like mules and horses and cattle, stubborn sheep, doing what we want to do. But the wise person wakes up, and the wise person says yes. And he says repent and be baptized. And so baptism, we think, why is that important? Because it is, to my thinking, um, putting a stake in the ground. It's publicly publicly identifying with Jesus in obedience because he's, Jesus said we should be uh, baptized and the apostles say we should be baptized. And listen, this water, when we fill up that baptistry, comes from a well that's in a pump house on the other side over there. The only thing that makes it sacred is the idea that's involved in it when you do it. You fill up that baptistry and it's water, probably cold water, okay, honestly, but not you know, like 40 degrees. But when you get into that water, it's not magic. The, the, the thing that makes it meaningful is the attitude in the person that goes down those steps into baptism and allows themselves to be immersed and to come out because in the attitude that a person is exhibiting or expressing, we are saying, bye, old life, hello, new life. 
I'm coming alive to Christ now. And so we, we see that that was part of the response. The message comforts us because he says this isn't just for you. It's for your children. It's for those who are far off. And so the message of hope that we have is for anyone the Lord has called. That's the tense in the passage. It will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we come to Christ, there is this incredible miracle taking place. I wish I could explain it better. You know what students in seminary argue about all the time? Election, predestination, how salvation works. I, I used to joke. Like I went to a Southeastern Baptist Theological College and seminary. I said, if you threw a rock at a pack of students in the lunchroom, you would hit somebody arguing about the sovereignty of God and election and predestination and all those. uh, Why? Because it's an incredible mystery. I don't know how it works. I just know that it works. I do know that. I know that God can take a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. I know that God can take somebody rebellious, going their own way, living their life on their own terms, and turn that person so that they, everybody around them goes, what happened to them? That's not the same person I used to know. So it's comforting that that's what God can do. And then the message connects us to, because he, he calls them, uh, and they respond and are baptized. And then it says that this there was added to them about 3,000 people who said yes and who responded. So the Christian movement immediately became unmanageable. Think about that. How did they do it? How did they do it? We we feel overwhelmed all the time by our little bit of, you know, community. Like, how do we do this? How did they do it? They just did it. It's like they, they... had little discipleship communities that people would meet and talk about Jesus and grow in their faith and they obeyed what they knew. I would love to be overwhelmed by a problem like that, wouldn't you? Having to figure out the logistics of that, that would be awesome. And I think we express things in limits so often when what we need to do is say, God, if you start working, we're going to shoot a sail up and we're going to catch the wind of your spirit and we're going to ride it like crazy. And figure it out. That's what they did. They they saw, man, God is uh, powerfully at work. It was a movement of God. We used to sing a great song. Me and Cody were talking this week. I was joking about that. I'm like, every song that's like more than 15 minutes old now is an old song. But this song was from 1995. Uh, by Michael W. Smith called Ancient Words. And part of the lyrics say, Holy words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Let them speak. Let them do what they're intended to do. The Christian faith gives us fixed coordinates to live God's way. Jesus didn't say, or Jesus didn't travel across the galaxy and lay down his life to have it be one of many options. That's not what he was doing. He traveled across the galaxy and laid down his life because it is the only option. The ancient words that we read, are they're timeless and they are powerful. And this way is eternal and it's founded and formed in the perfect heart of God. And Christians may talk about innovations and method, and we should. We should always be open to experiment with methods. But the message that we have it must never be changed because it is 
from God's heart to us that was passed along faithfully by others who saw him and believed him. We don't have to rethink our mission. It's clearly laid out by the Lord, simple and straightforward. It merely needs to be followed. And God has come in Christ and accomplished salvation. This free gift, it's free. It's costly, but it's free. And it must be received. And I like what others have said. God gives where he finds open hands. We have to open our hands. We have to receive the gift and accept that it's a miracle that maybe I won't ever be able to explain. I just know God does it. That he changes lives when people yield. And I like the disciples and their commitment. They were compelled and they followed the uh, Spirit's leading to take this message and to live it and to pass it on. We're going to have a time of prayer and uh, uh, commitment. And, of course, as we close the service, uh, if you need prayer, if you want to follow Jesus in baptism and obedience to him, this is the opportunity for you to, to do so. And I would encourage you to, like, if you need to have more conversation about it, then I keep uh, office hours. We have elders, others that can counsel you and help you think through what it means to be a follower of Christ. And for the re- rest of us that have done that, the encouragement to, is to continue following uh, Christ and faithfully giving witness to him. Stand with me. Let's have a prayer. If there's a need that you have to pray for counsel then I encourage you to respond during this time God thank you for the Bible thank you for the apostles and the the message that we see uh, lived out among them God that they believed with all their heart there was no way to you except through Jesus and so I pray God you'll help us to live out that same message in our uh, lives and families with uh, all of it characterized by godly love and we uh, love you pray for Thank you for hearing us and asking in Christ's name.